That was good stuff, and thanks again for Cam sharing Thanksgiving thoughts and, and uh, for the prayer we've shared together. And look at this place. It is uh, looking Christmassy. Thank you to Mel and the team uh, for making this happen. And uh, I know some Melody's going to be mad at me now. That's all right. You can be mad at me later, but we are grateful for you and the work you've done to make this look so beautiful. Uh, well, here we are, front end of the Christmas season. Uh, does it feel early to you? Because it's feeling that way to me. I'm like, I just woke up and here we are. What's going on? But you can tell it's happening, right? It's happening everywhere. Uh, we've got the advertisements on TV, online. Black Friday happened on Friday. That's, that's when that happens. Yeah. And uh, Cyber Monday's on the way. Your favorite coffee shop right now is pushing overpriced sugar-laced drinks and festive-looking cups, or at least they think they are festive. I'm getting some of this. I'm going, really? That's... But what are you going to do? You can't invent a new festive cup, can you? I mean, year after year, you only have so many ideas, so many designs, right? But here we are. We're, we're preparing for Christmas. But the question is, are we? Are we really? Because the reality is, is as much as the culture paints it as glitzy and gold and lighthearted and everything else, the reality is, is we're facing hard times. Uh, for many of us, these are dark days, uh, times of loss, times of fear. And, and rather than pretend like everything's shiny and new, the Bible gives us a, a much more robust view of Christmas and what it means. Uh, the Bible calls us in this time to face the darkness so that we can truly take in, admire, and receive the light that comes from Jesus. And so for this reason, we're going to spend the next several weeks leading up to Christmas in the book of Ruth. And uh, you might be thinking, why are we going to be in the book of Ruth? Uh, what makes the book of Ruth a, a message about Christmas? And, and we'll get to that a little later. But for now, I just want to invite you to turn there to, Luke, uh, to, to Ruth. And uh, as we do so, uh, we're going to go through this narrative. We're going to travel through and... and uh, and just enjoy the, the story itself, this historical account. And then we'll circle back and we'll, we'll apply uh, different parts of this to our lives today. Uh, but, uh, but yes, the book of Ruth, we'll, we'll be looking today at chapter 1. And uh, it begins uh, with a very interesting kind of setup phrase. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land... And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malhan and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Mahlon and Chilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Uh, we look at the opening of this account and we go, what is going on? These were the days when the judges ruled, and, and so we know that that was a period of spiritual, social, and political unrest in, in, in Judah, and uh, there was a, a way in which 
the people would see that chaos and that would cause them to long for a king and that's kind of a part of the overarching story there of, of Israel. But it's a difficult time. The theme of the book of Judges was simply this. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. People did what they wanted to do. It was a lawless time. And now we find there's also a difficulty. A famine is in the land. A famine was a life-threatening challenge. Uh, There are parts of the world today that experience those things as well. For us as Americans in the 21st century, that's that's kind of a distant concept to us. But if you could imagine literally not being able to feed your family, there was no solution. There wasn't any food to be found. And there's also irony here because the phrase or the name Bethlehem literally means house of bread. So you have this place known for its fertility and, and the ability to produce crops, so much so that it's called the house of bread. There's no food there. And so Elimelech decides to go to Moab. And we look at that and we kind of go, wait a minute, if you're a, you know, someone who's receiving this uh, account for the first time, you're going, why Moab? What is going on? Uh, the Moabites were not known as the friends of Israel. Uh, these were the people, they were the descendants of Lot when Lot had decided to go down to this plain and to, um, uh, actually, it's actually beyond the sea. It's, it's a, a, a large um, kind of plain that's high above um, sea level there. So it actually looks down on, on the Sea of Galilee. But the Moabites, they, they were not to be admitted into the congregation of Israel. They, they worshipped Shamash, which was the god to whom human sacrifice was apparently made. And so you're going, what are you doing? Why are you going there? And, and, and the narrative doesn't answer the questions for us. And by the way, I love that. I love how biblical narrative doesn't answer all of our questions. It expects us to read, to think, to take it in. It's, it's more sophisticated and nuanced than that. It's not just going to spell it out. But we find ourselves asking those questions. Why Moab? Is this a, a lack of trust in God's providence? Is, is this maybe a, a, a desire that Elimelech, who's, who's going, look, I need to feed my family? Is this something that in the, in the time of the judges, frankly, it was the least of people's concerns on a, mo- a moral level? You know, who cared? It didn't matter to them. But, the, but there seems to be at least this underlying sort of feeling of a discontented, distru- distrustful uh, sort of spirit that lacks stability. In, in resting in God's providence and care. And so almost the idea of, well, we're not getting food here, we're out of here, we're leaving. And so they go. Uh, people's names in, in biblical narratives always mean something. Elimelech actually means God is my king. So there's probably irony in that as well. If, in fact, Elimelech is leaving out of lack of trust. Um, Naomi means pleasant. And we'll talk more about the meaning of her name later on. The names of the sons... Mahlon and Chilion, they seem to relate to words of sickness and mortality, which, of course, also relates to what happens in the narrative itself. Um, when it says they're Ephrathites, that's talking about their clan. So he's of this particular clan in this particular town, Bethlehem in Judah. Probably means that there were more than one Bethlehem at the time. So you had to specify, you know, that Bethlehem, that certain one. There's also a progression we find here. Initially, you'll notice they go to sojourn in the land to stay, but then eventually they come to dwell there or live there or remain there. So it's kind of a progression that we find. And then verse 3 just hits us with 
a very brief statement that's as tragic as it is brief. Essentially, um, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. Now, in that culture, at that time, that meant she had no way of providing for her family. Automatically, destitute, without recourse. Just put yourself in here per place for a moment. Could you imagine just being there? You've come all this way. Your husband's led you here for the purpose of what? Getting food and security. And now the exact opposite has happened. But somehow they manage to survive. Her boys grow, and eventually they take for themselves Moabite women as wives. Again, the narrative causes you to ask questions. What's going on here? There's not an overcommand saying, you shall not marry Moabites. However, if we look at the overall narrative kind of history of Israel, we find this was the problem that came about repeatedly in Israel's history. It was the cute Moabite girl down the road who led sons of Israel to worship Shemosh. It was those kinds of ways in which the line of, of, of Israel was, was taken away from Yahweh. So they, they marry, and, and they marry uh, Orpah and Ruth, and 10 years go by, you'll notice no children are born to them. Again, reading between the lines there, you're going, huh, that's interesting, because in that culture at that time, blessing from God meant kids. But then the unthinkable happens. Both Malhan and Chilion die. And, and in that point, you find in the narrative a fascinating thing. Notice at verse 5, it just says, and the woman was bereft of her two children. It's as if in that moment, Naomi loses her identity itself. She's not even referred to it by name. She's lost who she is. And she's left without And so as they are in that place at that time, very quickly the narrative brings us into this dark place, a place of trial, heartache, pain, loss. And we start to ask questions, what is God doing in this? Is he doing anything in this? What's happening here? And maybe you find yourself that way right now. Maybe you've come here today or maybe you're joining us online and you're asking those same kinds of questions. It's important that you know that this account has been written for people in that very place. And there are answers. And God works. Sometimes it's hard to see. And in the moment, it looks like the exact opposite is the case, that he's indifferent or distant. But let's go on with the narrative. We pick it up in verse 6. Then she, being Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return my daughters. Why should you go with me? 
Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go. For I'm too old to have a husband. And if I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. The key word that comes up through this section is the word return. It happens about 12 times or so through the whole passage. Return, return, return. In this case, Naomi's deciding, wait a minute, God's visited our people. I'm going to return back. Let's go back where there's food, where there's bread. Again, the, the plan worth Bethlehem has, has bread again. And so they're on their way to go back, it says. And as they're traveling, by the way, this would be dangerous. This is a courageous thing to do, to go from there and travel all the way back to Bethlehem as women. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a lot going on there. But Naomi then, with a warm heart, looks at her daughters-in-law and goes, you know what, you don't have anything back here. You don't want to be with me. I'm the one that, that appears to have God's hand against me. I mean, she's not even saying it appears. She's saying it is. Uh, and, and, and verse 13 there, the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. That, that really uh, is giving this picture of almost an attack. So don't go with me. Go back to your mother's house. You'll be better off. You can find a new husband. There's hope for you in that. You can have stability and income and everything else. And so she keeps insisting on this over and over again. As a matter of fact, she even goes into this, this, this kind of almost humorous description. Oh, yeah, you're going to wait for me. Great. Look at my age. What if I even did get a husband, which I'm not? What if I even were able to bear children right away? Are you going to wait for them to grow up before you marry them? Please, give me a break. Just go home. She gives an absurd illustration to communicate that the wise thing to do is to go back. And you can see the love that she has for her daughters-in-law. And, uh, and, and, and she's also bringing up this, this principle of, of what we call the Leverite marriage. So in, in Israel, uh, the custom was if a husband died and he had no male offspring, that one of his brothers would be obligated to marry the widow and beget children with her. That was a normal cultural thing. So that, that his proxy would continue on. That his name wouldn't be extinguished. But she's saying, that's not going to happen. So you need to go back. Again, I'm returning. Now you return. And so with great emotion, Orpah kisses Naomi and leaves. You can see she didn't want to. There's a tenderness there, but she's gone, okay. You're right. You're right. Seems like the most common sense thing to do. And so she leaves. But then we find Ruth, she clings. The, 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 it's literally to hold on to something tightly. Ruth will not let go. She won't do it. Yeah, it's common sense. It seems like the, the best thing to do. And the answer is no. And then she expresses herself to Ruth. 
Look at what it says. Then she said, behold, uh, this is Naomi talking again. Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, verse 15, and to her gods, return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything, but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. This is possibly one of the most poetic, beautiful statements in the entire Old Testament. When we look at how Ruth expresses herself, it's poetry. She literally breaks into almost a song. And there's a sym- symmetry to the way the lines play out here. Don't urge me to leave you, she says. I'm following you. I'm not going anywhere. And notice the parallelism. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And then this is very significant. Your people, I'm a Moabite. Your people, the people of Israel, they're going to be my people. And most of all, your God, my God. This is um, what we would call a, a, a chiastic Structure. What does that mean? Great. Okay. Well, and, and by the way, people try to find these all the time, and they're like, there's one here, there's one here. They're kind of like, you know, the unicorn in, in hermeneutics or, you know, biblical studies. I'm going to find one. Okay. And so I'm, I want you to know, I don't just say, hey, check it out. It's here. No, but this really is one. Okay. So what is it? Um, in Hebrew poetry, if we have something we want to emphasize, we will lay out this phrase right in the center of a verse. And then we'll have parallel statements off either side leading to that. And of course, every Hebrew little kid at this time heard that and go, oh yeah, it's a chiasm, sure, no big deal, right? To us, we're like, where is it? You know, where is it? We, but, but to them, it would be very natural. So here, the chiastic structure, as it comes together, the emphasis is your people are my people and your God is my God. That is like the crescendo of the entire thing. Everything around it wraps it up and heads toward that point. And it's beautiful. One writer put it this way, the form of Ruth's poem with God at the center mirrors the shape of her heart. So many commentators try to say, yeah, she wasn't really a believer. We don't know. She was just trying to be nice to Naomi. It's like, come on, read the poem. She's been transformed. This is not normal speech from a Moabite woman of that time. Matter of fact, look at how she ends it. Just may, may, thus may the Lord do to me. He, she's referring to God as Yahweh. That is his personal covenant-keeping name. So this is a moving speech. It's got these beautiful kind of resonating parallel phrases. And she is showing 
loyalty and love to her mother-in-law in an astounding way at that time. Truly stunning. But more than that, she's showing that love because of a massive transformation that's happened within her. Verse 18 is fascinating because after Ruth, Naomi sees Ruth's resolve, she doesn't urge her to leave anymore. She was probably shocked. Also, though, can you imagine how she would feel to know, I guess I'm not making this journey all the way back to Bethlehem by myself after all. I guess I'm not actually alone. The narrative continues in verse 19. The scene shifts. They've arrived at Bethlehem. Verse 19. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? It was a dangerous journey. They come into town, and the town is excited. They're like, whoa, it's Naomi. Now, by the way, we would find the Hebrew term here for city. It really does have more the idea of a town. It was little. At that time, Bethlehem would not have been a very large place. So you can kind of just picture a small town. Maybe you're from a small town. You know what it's like when you go home. You're about to go home for Christmas probably. Everyone's going to be there. They're all going to see you. Whoa. And then, of course, you'll notice it's the ladies start talking. <laughs> what are they? They're the town ladies. We all know what this means, right? This is the gossip chain. This is how news is spread. The ladies start talking. Naomi's back. This small agricultural town with cultivated fields on the outside border. Local women are talking. It's, 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 it's a notable event. Um, why? Because Naomi was gone for 10 years. And they're probably going, where's Elimelech? What happened? And so lots of gossip, lots of, lots of speculation. And notice the woman focus on Naomi. They're not even paying attention to the young woman that's with her. She's just kind of off to the side. What's going on with you? Oh, yeah, okay. It is interesting that through this entire chapter, the most active participants are the women. That also would have been very unusual for this time period. Uh, it, it's almost as if the men are briefly introduced to fulfill their purpose from a narrative standpoint. And that is essentially to die. That's about it. The rest of it is about the ladies. And we find so many wonderful lessons from them. But this, again, makes this narrative so unique. She, Naomi makes a, a wordplay on her name. Why? Because, well, as we said before, her name means pleasant, and yet that's not how she feels. That's not how she's seeing life. That's not what's going on with her. No, instead, she is in a place of having experienced and in a, in a season of deep bitterness. So she says, just call me Mara, because that's what the Hebrew term Mara means, bitterness. 
The Lord has made her life very bitter. And, and even here we find that uh, there's a lot of contrast in, in, uh, in Naomi's explanation. I, w- I, was, I went away full, I came back empty. Uh, the way it's laid out in the original language, it's I full, emphatic, went away, but empty brought me back, Yahweh. So the contrast is between full and empty about how she went away and now has been brought back. Herself, I went full away. Yahweh brought me back empty. So all those things are the contrast there in that phrase. She's experiencing a lot of pain. And again, who has afflicted her? It's the Almighty. God's done this to me. This section concludes with verse 22. Look at what it says. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And you think, oh, okay, that's the time of year they came back. What's the big deal? Well, we're going to see, as this narrative unfolds, that time frame The fact they're coming right at the beginning of the barley harvest has everything to do with what's about to happen next. So many things within this narrative seem to be like just just details of it. It just so happened that. And yet when we back off and look, we see now God's doing something here. And it's significant. There are a lot of important lessons that come to us from this fantastic narrative um, and, and we can see it in several different ways. But, but certainly, one of the things that we would find clearly is, is this. When God empties his children, it's because of his faithful love. You'll notice when uh, Naomi says, it's the Lord who has brought me back empty. She was right about that. God is the one who is sovereign. God is ruling over these things. And yet, Why is he doing that? What's happening here? Um, Let's face it again. Dark, bitter days are things we all experience. And and you might feel as though you're being empty today. Maybe it's work pressure that's overwhelming you or it's fatiguing. It might be that you have a loved one that's facing a terminal illness. Maybe you're facing that right now. You you might sense the plans that that you have for for caring for others or the well-being of your life or, or, or family has been blocked at every turn. You might sense that you're, 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 God's the one who's against me in these things. Why doesn't anything happen? Why, isn't it, why aren't things going the way they should or the way I want them to? But here's the thing. The reality is this. Yahweh caused Ruth's emptiness. I'm sorry. Yahweh caused Naomi's emptiness in order to bring her back to solve her emptiness. And the reality is that God causes our emptiness in order to bring us back and to solve our emptiness in him. He does that. And, and Naomi didn't see it at the time, and you might not see it right now either. 
But what was true for her, whether she saw it or not, is true for your life as well. Whether you see it or not. And so we have to hold on to this. God empties his children. When he does that, it's because of his faithful love. The word hesed is the word for faithful love. It is a theme throughout the, the book of Ruth. Hesed is God's faithful, covenant-keeping love. And one thing we can be assured of is when God empties his children, it is because of his hesed. It is not a demonstration of his indifference. It does not show a lack of love for you or a lack of grace. No, for the child of God, that season that he's taking you through right now is because of his hesed. He's fulfilling it now. And it may well be that he has to bring you to a place of emptiness so that you can be made full in him. Another thing that we find, thankfully, God's work of faithful love does not depend on the strength of our faith. Whew. That's a good thing. I mean, really, what do we make of Naomi in this first chapter? Her spiritual condition, you know, we've got some, some commentators will say, oh, she's so noble and she's trusting God at every step. Others are like, she's an abject sinner. Who knows what she's doing? And you're kind of going, folks, calm down. You know what? The narrative doesn't solve that for us either. It's mixed. I mean, on a positive side, she receives news of Bethlehem's uh, bread the fact that there's food there, she receives that as Yahweh's gracious intervention. She sees that. Additionally, she also calls on Yahweh to bless her daughters-in-law in, in verses 8 and 9. So we see there's an element of faith there. She does trust God. And yet, on another side, let's face it, she, she did go right along with Elimelech's seemingly faithless move in leaving Bethlehem for Moab in the first place. Uh, she seems to have no objection to her sons marrying Moabitesses. She commends Orpah for going back to her gods. And so even, even her motives for returning to Bethlehem, it's not super clear, but there's enough there between the lines to, to go, you know, there's even the bitterness she expresses on her arrival that might suggest that, that rather than sharing in what seems to be maybe even a, a renewed faith of those in Bethlehem, you know, the return of God's blessing seems like a sign of renewal there for that community. But she might still be searching for fullness in, in, in bread or in earthly material riches. She might be looking for fullness there still. So we kind of have Naomi as someone we're going, where's her faith at? What's going on? We don't know. We see Ruth. Ruth has this beautiful picture of an amazing inner heart transformation. You know, she, she, she's in this place of trusting God, and, and yet we find Naomi, we're not so sure. There seems to be maybe even not, not much sign of a difference between when she left Bethlehem and when she comes back to Bethlehem. A decade's gone by. We're not, we're not sure. But, but here's the good news. Yahweh did not abandon her because of her weakness of faith. Yahweh did not turn away from her because somehow her theology was, was deficient or because she failed to, to talk with nice, polished, happy, religious phraseology. 
No, she's real. She's real. She came as she, she really was. And we don't even know yet in the, in the narrative how God's going to answer those desires or those prayers or those yearnings. We don't see that yet. But for those of us who know the rest of the story, just hold on and wait and you'll see. This is hope for everybody who, who struggles with faith, who struggles with times of, of doubt, who struggles with, with seasons of despair even. Uh, the narrator doesn't just sanitize what Naomi says to her daughters or even her outbursts about what she senses as being Yahweh's uh, uh, opposition to her. She doesn't pretend that everything's okay when everything's not. And so if you're weak in faith, take heart. His faithfulness doesn't depend upon the strength of your faith. No, it depends on the strength of his faithfulness. Another thing we learn is this. As we grow to know God, we become conduits of his faithful love to others. Look at Ruth. She comes to the place of, of knowing Yahweh and now she does what is against common sense out of love. Against common sense, but true and good in light of love. It's inspiring. How many things have you done lately that have been against common sense but out of love? Let's do more of it. If you're not given to doing that, start. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's point to the Lord while we do it. I mean, sometimes I've heard people doing random acts of kindness, and then you know, someone comes back, oh, I have such great hope in humanity. And I'm like, oh, please. No, that's not it. <laughs> you know, we want to do random acts of kindness to point to the Lord because he's changed us. It's living out of his hesed, his loving kindness, that causes us then to want to give that to others. Um, you know, we, we look at love, it's interesting, oftentimes for love, for us, it's sort of a romantic thing typically. Sometimes it's, it's more of a, you know, something where it's, you know, I, I really end up loving because you love me back. We've talked about that before. Sometimes it's more of just, this idea of, I'm not interested for the other person. I want what the other person can do for me. But here, this is, this is a different kind of love. This hesed is the idea of sacrificing ourselves for the good of another person. There's more, though. We also learn this, that no matter how dark it gets... God works through his imperfect people to fulfill his perfect plan. What's his plan? Well, his plan is to carry out his loving kindness, his hesed. How's he going to do that? He's going to do that through the Messiah, his son, Jesus Christ. And now I'm kind of opening my hand a little bit as to why this is a Christmas book. Because if his plan is to send the son, he also has a plan on how the, how the son is to come. And we're told repeatedly that the son comes through the line of 
David. The Messiah is the Davidic king. The story is going to lead us there. But the reality is this. If this account doesn't take place, there is no King David. And if there is no King David, there is no Messiah. And if there is no Messiah, then you and I are still dead in our sins. There is no Christmas. But thankfully, God works through imperfect people to fulfill his perfect plan. God's going to send his son to condemn sin in his body on the cross so that all who receive him, there is now no condemnation. Stunning to think about. It might get dark and people are imperfect and they're not carrying out everything the way we would want them to be. We ourselves fail miserably, repeatedly, over and over again. And yet God is still at work to bring about his perfect result. How does he do it? Why does he do it? This account tells us his hesed, his faithful covenant-keeping love. He is faithful because he cannot deny himself. Do you ever, I mean, could you imagine being like that ever? I mean, our family has a hard enough time just getting in the car and leaving to go somewhere on time, Okay. Could you imagine if you could just work that out? Like, no matter how much the people around you mess up, including yourself, your desired end always comes about. What would that be like? That's not us. That's not me. But God is even more glorified in that he takes frail, broken human beings like you and me and uses us in our imperfection, to bring about his perfect, wondrous plan. You can count on it. Why? Because he is faithful. He is faithful to keep his covenant. He is the God of Hesed, loving kindness. He always will be. So again, we come back to what makes the book of Ruth a message about Christmas exactly? Well, let's think about something for a second. Where did our account begin? Bethlehem. And then a lot of it took place in Moab, Moab, but then where does the chapter end? Bethlehem. Starts in Bethlehem, ends in Bethlehem. And this is significant. Of course, we're going to find out more about this as the story unfolds. But let's take a look at another passage. Micah chapter 5. Notice what it says in verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Huh, there's one coming forth. Who's that? That's Messiah. Where's he going to be born? Bethlehem. Notice this also. It's Bethlehem Ephratha. What's that referring to? The exact clan. You'll recall in Ruth 1.1, there's a man named Elimelech. And, and, and 
What tribe is he from? The Ephrathites. There it is. Micah has more to say about that. Verse 4, And he, this one who's coming, will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one who's coming from Bethlehem, this one who's going to be a ruler in Israel, eventually will come again to rule the the earth. All of it. Perfectly. Micah goes on to say this. This one will be our peace. There's only one place to find peace. It's in this one, Jesus. Maybe you've never come to that place of of turning to him. The invitation to you in this moment is that you would turn to him and trust him. Come to that place of, of, of confessing you're a sinner. Receive his righteousness, the payment that he made on the cross as the one who lived the life we could never live but died the death that we deserve. He died in our place, and for all who come to him by faith, they receive as a gift his righteousness. You can be reconciled to the one who made you today. And you think about it, maybe our culture's press into bringing Christmas in with all the glitz and light and no darkness actually shows a deeper desire to escape the reality of our broken world. But here's the thing, no one can escape for long. In a world that is catastrophically fallen because of sin, pretending that everything is glitter and cheer is dishonest, and, and, and frankly, it's, it's exhausting to try to live like that. There's one who has come who offers full-fledged, real peace, full forgiveness of sins, and a renewed relationship with God Almighty, creator and maker of all. Come to him today. Come to the one who actually brings peace. Well, as I mentioned, the beginning of the barley harvest seems like a coincidence, and we're soon going to meet a man named Boaz who has a really important part to play to redeem a member of his extended family. And in doing so, God's going to pave the way for the redemption of the whole world. But for that, we'll have to come together again next week. So let's pray. Lord, we, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the reality of your plan to bring about redemption in the Messiah. Lord, we thank you that when you do empty us as your children, it's because of your faithful love. And it's order to, to bring us back to you to solve our emptiness in you. We thank you, Lord, that your work of faithful covenant-keeping love depends upon the strength of your faithfulness, not the times of our weakness in faith. And we thank you, Lord, that we can become, as we get to know you more, and as we get to 
enjoy your hesed more, we get to share that same faithful love with others. Grace us to do so as we approach this coming Christmas season, that you'd be glorified. We praise you for all these things in the name of the Messiah, the one who has come, the one who died, and the one who is risen. We praise you in his name now. Amen.